0: Do take a copy of God's Word, and let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're picking up in the middle of that chapter and then reading into about the middle of chapter 14, verse uh, 23. So it's been two weeks, and just to kind of set the stage where we last left things, uh, the Philistine army was... um, they were not necessarily mounting an attack, but doing all the things that would make one afraid that an attack is soon to come. They were strengthening their forces. They're getting closer, moving uh, to border territories. And Israel's um, getting nervous, understandably so. And Saul, the king, um, was reminded that he's to meet uh, Samuel the prophet at a place called Gilgal. And there, uh, Samuel would offer sacrifice to the Lord. And it would become clear what um, was expected of Israel in this encounter, in this um, battle between um, the Philistines and the Israelites. But Saul is impatient. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He goes on and he sacrifices on his own. And because of that, Samuel comes back to him and says, "Uh, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God. Uh, The Lord now will... uh, he says in verse 14, now your kingdom shall not continue. There will be another king. The Lord is seeking a man after his own heart. So Saul has just learned that his future dynasty, not his kingship, but the kingship of his sons, grandsons, great, great grandsons is now over. There is, it's over before it gets started. And that's where we're picking up. So the scene is still the same in terms of the Philistines um, uh, pressing in on all sides. We pick up uh, there in the middle of verse 15. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, so we're not sure how much time has passed between these two chapters, but the the setting is still the same. The issue is still the same with the Philistines. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people there... the people who were there with him were about 600 men including Ahijah the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother son of Phinehas son of Eli the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod the people did not know that Jonathan had gone within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side the name of the one was Bezez the name of the other was Sineh The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul." Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an, an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. That's the Philistines. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it, Bless the preaching of it as well. So let's turn back to where we began to read, which was in the middle of chapter 13. Something that is hard uh, to miss in the opening of this section is the fact that the odds are stacked against Israel. That's what the narrator wants us to see. Odds stacked against them. That's the first thing, the odds stacked against them. And we see that in three ways as it pertains to the Philistines in particular. Three ways. First, in number. Uh, Saul takes a head count of those who are still with him. If you remember uh, from last time, they were in Gilgal. They're waiting for Samuel. And because Samuel seemed to be delaying, he didn't. But because it seemed that way, uh, people started to run away. They started to flee. There was there was soldiers going AWOL. And so... They had a few thousand, now they count their number and we're down to 600. That's not a lot. Do you remember the number of the Philistines? It's at the beginning of chapter 13. Look at verse 5. Chapter 13, verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops, infantry, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. You couldn't even count how many thousands were with them. Uh, that is the uh, that's the first disadvantage, <laughs> the first odd against Israel is the number. Second, the Philistines also have the upper hand when it comes to their arsenal as well. Look at verse 19. We're given some background information about the culture that shows how desperate Israel would have been in a battle against the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines are the expert when it comes to uh, smithing and, and and metallurgy and stuff like that, and they're not going to share their secrets. Or their supplies. Now, that's not really anything uh, particularly novel. Countries do that um, still to this day. They have military uh, secrets that they don't want other countries to know. The U- U.S. has developed and maintains some of the most advanced um, uh, stealth aircraft in the world. For example, we have the um, the Raptor, the F twenty two Raptor, for example, or the F thirty five Lightning II. Uh, we're not going to share the tech behind those aircraft. Um, actually, just this past week, maybe you saw, I think it was on Thursday, um, uh, the White House announced troubling news. They, that was the word they used, troubling news, that Russia has developed technology for a satellite weapon, they think it's nuclear-powered. A satellite weapon that could disable American communications and operations. And part of the things that ma- part of the thing that makes it so terrifying is that the Russians are using a tech that we don't have, uh, that we don't um, yet um, have ourselves. And so part of the uh, the thinking here is that you know you keep your secrets close so that uh, um, another nation that might have less than uh, less than friendly motives can't uh, use it against you. Well, the Philistines have taken that to the extreme because um, they've kept all the blacksmiths back with them. And if the Israelites need even so much as a piece of farming equipment or a gardening tool sharpened, they need to go over, they need to make a trip to uh, Philistia, my um, um laptop has been acting up, and so because it's a MacBook, the only way you can get that service is to go to the Genius Bar at an Apple store. We don't have one here, so anytime this happens, I have to go up to uh, Woodland Mall right in Grand Rapids to get that fixed. The the Israelites, they have to go up to or go down to uh, Philistia, and they have to pay a pretty penny to get uh, their axes sharpened, to get um, uh, their uh, various tools fixed. And so because of this, um, they don't have any weapons. The Philistines keep them to themselves. Only Saul and his son Jonathan are sufficiently armed for battle. We don't know how they got their sword and spear, but they have them. Uh, and it's interesting now as the Philistines are, or as the Israelites are about to go against the Philistines, it's not as though they can bluff. It's not as though they can act like they are um, well armed. They are going up against the only nation that knows precisely how ill-equipped they are uh, to fight so there's a disadvantage uh, a final advantage pre- presents itself for the philistines and that is their position they have the the upper hand literally so, um they have the high ground right in verse 9 jonathan speaks of having to go up to the garrison of the philistines that's in um, chapter 14 he has to go up there and if you go up a, a few verses uh verse 4 and 5 of chapter 14, within the passes, that is between the camps, between the Philistines and the Israelites, uh, but within the passes by which John then sought to go over to the Philistine garrisons, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. It seemed like he would need to go down one and then maybe up the other. There's no way of avoiding these. The name of the one was Bozes, and that is Hebrew, uh, literally Hebrew for slippery. Or if you're from Central PA, slippy. Okay, so that's a that's a slippy crevasse they have to get up. And then the name of the other was Sena, which meant thorny. This is a difficult uh, terrain to to get across. The odds are against them, and uh, they have the the high ground, so they could even uh, see people trying to to uh, you know launch uh, an offensive against them, anyone who would attempt to do that would lose the element of surprise and would be a sitting duck. So there's three ways in which the Philistines pose a foreboding threat on Israel. They have greater numbers, they have greater weapons, and they have a greater vantage point. But Israel uh, has an internal disadvantage as well that we should consider, and that is their leader, Saul. Who's going to help them in this dire situation, this standoff with their villainous Neighbors. The only option appears to be a king who's rather aloof. Uh, while Jonathan, his son, is, is planning and strategizing, look at the start of chapter 14. Uh, we're told in uh, verse 2 that, uh, so John, verse 1, Jonathan in his armor bearer saying, Let's go over to the Philistines, let's do something. But then verse 2, in contrast, Saul is staying in the pomegranate cave at Migran. A Cave could be translated tree. And so he is either hiding, if it's a cave, or he's resting in the shade, if it's a tree. The point is, he's not fighting. His son's doing that. His son's the one doing the fighting. Now, this is quite a different Saul than the Saul we encountered in chapter 11. Remember when the Ammonite king Nahash says that he's going to pluck out the right eyes of those living in Gilead and and Saul is like, we are going to do something about this. And he takes the fight uh, to them. Something has is, is, is changed here. Maybe the difference has to do with the exchange that he recently had with Samuel, where Samuel told him, We're taking, God's taking the dynasty away from you. Uh, might that discourage you from throwing yourself into a military fray? If you've just been told, you know, it's, nothing's really going to pan out here in the future, he might be thinking, what's the point But this is all that Israel really seems to have going for them against the Philistines. A king who is hanging back. A king whose dynasty has been cut short by God's judgment. uh, One who's who's hanging around with his entourage. And that's actually instructive for us as well. Look back with me at verse 2. He's in a pomegranate cave. And it says, the people with him, about 600, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. Ichabod's brother son of Phinehas son of Eli who was the priest of the Lord in Shiloh and he's wearing an ephod Saul's entourage includes a priest named Ahijah and his uncle is Ichabod do you remember Ichabod Uh, he's Eli's grandson Uh, we read of him in chapter 4 I believe he's the one born to Eli's disgraced family to uh, his wicked son, Eli's wicked son, the ones who had, uh, his sons who had sinned so grievously that the ark is taken away from Israel. When the ark's taken away, you remember the, the uh, child is born at that exact moment and the child serves as sort of an omen. And they name him Ichabod, which means, where is the uh, glory? The glory has departed, God has abandoned us. Uh, It was a sign, though, also that that priestly line had been cut off. So here's Israel's situation. They have a king whose dynastic future has been cut off, and he's being um, counseled by a priest whose line has been cut off from the Lord. Things are not looking good for Israel. In the words of one uh, writer, this whole passage breathes despair for Israel. Things are not looking good. The blessings of God have been removed from their king. Their enemies are strong and mighty, and they're closing in. They have no weapons with which to defend themselves. Uh, The the technical term here, the military technical term, is that they are toast. That's the situation. What are they going to do with the odds stacked against them? Well, notice with me, secondly, how those odds stacked against them are now crushed for them. The odds crushed for them. Because astoundingly, Israel comes out victorious against their foes. Uh, the hero who emerges is not Saul. It's his son, Jonathan. He is the one who's proactive. He takes the fight to the Philistines. Where Saul is hesitant, Jonathan is is uh, bold where Saul is foolish. Jonathan is is wise and discerning. Where Saul is faithless, Jonathan is faithful because he roots his every action in a trust that God will provide victory for his people. And I wonder if part of the point of this chapter, this story, is to show what what a great king Jonathan would have made, would have made. Uh, in Israel's future, and yet the hopes of his future reign are dashed because of Saul's sin and folly. They'll never have Jonathan as king because Saul lost the dynasty. But indeed, he shines in the story. He and his armor bearer, and now armor bearer is more than just like a you know, a lackey. This is more than um, a caddy. This is more than somebody who's just carrying around his shield. This is his comrade in arms. This is someone who fights with him, as we, we see. Um, they make their way up to this Philistine garrison on the top of the hill. They go through uh, you know, the slippy Bozes and the thorny Sene, and um, not easy to pass, especially if, if they've got armor with them, and yet they, they make their way up, just the two of them, and they're spotted by the Philistines, and that was always part of Jonathan's plan. If it was a little confusing what Jonathan was saying as he laid out the plan in verses um, 9 through um, let's see, where do we start? John then says, we'll cross over, we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still. So if they see us and they say, we're going to come and deal with you, he says, then, then we're not going to win. However, if they say, come up to us, in other words, oh, this is fun. <laughs> Look at these two pathetic Israelites uh, trying to launch a counterattack. Let's even let's even open up the gate for them. Let's just welcome them in. John then says, if that's the reaction we get, the Lord has given us given them into our hands. Um, so that that's the uh, situation. And of course, um, the Lord does deliver them into the to Jonathan's hands. Verse 13, we look there. They fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike, just the two of them, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. So the two of them fighting right there, Uh, hand-to-hand combat, and that caused a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earthquake, it became a very great panic. This starts a domino effect um, that sends the entire Philistine army running uh, and and eventually turning on one another in their panic, in their confusion, so that they start killing each other. And and, um, this emboldens the Israelites who had been, some of them had been held captive. Uh, that's in verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, it appears that some were, were being kidnapped and were being held prisoner. Those who were with the Philistines now turned and fought. And then verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves, these are the soldiers that went AWOL, when they see, oh, look what's going on. We, they turn around, they're now encouraged, and they, they come back to the battle, and the Lord secures victory for his people. And all of this happens. We, we got to ask. How do we get to this place. Where it's two guys. Uh, against a garrison. And then an entire nation. Or this entire army. Of thousands upon thousands. Gets defeated. How do we go from just those two guys. To this ultimate victory. The reason this all happens. Is because when Jonathan. Considered the odds. That were stacked against him. When he considered those odds. He took them. And he compared them. With the God who was on his side. He saw the odds, he he knew the situation, but he knew the God who was with him. Here, he put into practice the principle that the apostle lays out in Romans 8 If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we see here. Jonathan knew that. He viewed his situation, he saw the odds, and then he realized they don't matter. These odds don't matter. It's as though he's he he anticipating that great line from Doc Martin in Back to the Future, and he says, odds? Where we're going, we don't need odds. You know, that, that's, that's the situation here. What leads him and his armor-bearer into this audacious attack is the logic that he verbalizes in verse 6. Look there. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. By many... Or by few. True words were never spoken. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Nothing. Nothing. Again, Romans 8 comes to mind, right? What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. By many or by few. And God can save, uh, in the Old Testament, he often does save by few in order that he would receive the glory. The story of Gideon comes to mind. Maybe, boys and girls, you remember that story of Gideon where, where he's got this army of thousands, but God makes him whittle that army down by doing some weird things, having the guys drink out of the river and stuff like that, until there's just a few hundred to go up against the Midianites. But who wins? The Israelites do. And because they only had a few hundred, the only reason that they win has to be because the Lord is on their side. The Lord is fighting for them. Jonathan, in this scene, is expressing faith in God's particular promise, which has been repeated dozens of times at this point, that he is going to give the land of Canaan to his people. And so Jonathan is saying, because God promised that, the Philistines, they have to be defeated. And God could do that with a great army, but I don't have a great army today. There's just me. But just Jonathan and his armor-bearer, plus the promise and power of God outmatches any army exceeds any opposition god can save by many or by few and i want you to realize today that in fact god's greatest act of salvation was not by many and it was not by few but it was by one it was by one romans chapter 5 In verse 19, for as the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. One man. Praise the Lord that our salvation doesn't depend on an army of righteous people mounting up to take on Satan and sin and their own strength. No army could ever be found. Only one was good enough. Only one. There is none, as you survey the great heroes in world history, militarily speaking, as you, great, as you survey the great heroes in the faith even, none are strong enough. None are powerful enough, none worthy enough to do all that God requires to secure the salvation of his people, except God himself. And so he comes to the rescue in the person of Jesus Christ because there was nobody else to do it. Look at Revelation 5. Let's turn there in your Bibles. Turn to the end of your Bibles and chapter 5, where we see Jonathan kind of bewailing this reality, not Jonathan, John. Bewailing this reality that there is none who can uh, accomplish God's work of salvation. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. A scroll written within and on the back. Double sided. Sealed with seven seals, and and the scroll represents God's plan for humanity and all of history. He says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to disclose God's plan for history? Who is worthy to carry out that plan? And what's it say? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Think of of uh, um, King Arthur, right before he's king, the sword in the stone, nobody able to pull it out until the worthy one, King, uh, the future King Arthur, comes and he easily pulls the sword out. Nobody is found here. Nobody's worthy among all the splendors of God's majestic retinue in heaven. There's living creatures. There, there's elders. There's angels, and then even all the creatures on the earth, under the earth. Nobody is found who's worthy enough. And so what does John do? He does the right thing. He weeps. I began to weep because there's nobody found worthy to open the scroll to tell us what God's plan is or to accomplish what that plan is. But then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, an army has come. No. Uh, A SEAL team six. No. Uh, You know, the A team, that's just four. No. What's it say? Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he, he can open the scroll and its seals. There's one, one who is worthy, one who is able. And perhaps it's when we feel like or when we recognize that there's no one to help, that's perhaps when we're best positioned to realize that there actually is only one who can help And that's certainly the case with our salvation. Just as Jonathan comes to the fight and rescue for Israel here, so God's elect are saved by the act of one man, that second Adam, the line of Judah, the lamb that was slain, the root of David. He is the one who comes to the fight and to the rescue. He is the one who saves the many. Friends, we only have one Savior, but we don't need any other. We have one, but we don't need another As long as the one who sticks by our side is Christ, there's no one else that we need. The one that God saves by is the best one, the greatest one, the strongest one, the sweetest one, the most beautiful one. Is he your one? That's the question. There's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. Do you know that name? The name is Jesus. Is he your one? I want us to return to verse 6 here as we wrap up, just to unpack what I think is really powerful um, doctrinal truth in Jonathan's statement there. So we're back to verse 6 of chapter 14 in closing. Uh, And this statement's important for us because it's informative to us Uh, of the nature of a true and a trusting faith in the Lord. God wants us to be like Jonathan. Be like Jonathan, but not in the sense that be that solo soldier, that brave guy who does something when nobody else is willing to do it. That's not what's exemplary about Jonathan. The most exciting thing, the most exemplary thing that Jonathan does in the story isn't killing 20 Philistines. It's believing the promises of God. And that's what we're meant to emulate, to be people who believe, to be people of faith. I want us to learn from his faith. And notice three things First, see faith's confidence, that Jonathan makes a bold statement. Nothing can hinder God from saving. That's faith's confidence. That's the confidence of faith. And that's a truth we find throughout Scripture. God says to Abraham when he talks about um, him having a child in his old age, he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can you imagine um, having to answer God? God's the one posing the question. Is anything too hard for me? What do you think, Abraham? Abraham? Jeremiah prays, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Gabriel tells Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Jesus tells his disciples, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. That's what Jonathan is saying, nothing can hinder God. These statements are all preaching the doctrine of God's omnipotence, his almightiness, right? God is not just mighty. He is all might. He is all strength. All that he is is might and strength and power. There's no weakness in God at all. There's a classic work titled The Incomparableness of God by a Puritan theologian, George Swinnick, and this is what he says. As there is nothing too hard for God, so there is nothing hard to God. And I thought, well, of course that's true, but I never really thought of it that way. It's not just as though that that God can overcome any, um, you know, uh, opposition or or any um, circumstance uh, because nothing is too hard for Him. He can eventually overcome it. It's that none of those obstacles, none of those circumstances are even hard to Him in the first place. We have a uh, a pastor in Hillsdale, Everett Hennis, who moonlights as a uh, as a uh, heavyweight champion. He comes to Kalamazoo and he does strongman competitions. And uh, so, be careful if you ever have ever preaching to you you know just yes sir okay yeah um there's this video that i just saw of him uh, from this past summer where he is pulling a semi-truck 17,500 pounds um but he's sweating i asked Everett, is that your greatest accomplishment in this you know in your heavyweight life and he said well that or maybe the the 650 pound uh deadlift i did and he sent me that picture too he's sweating so, God doesn't sweat. It's not just that nothing's too hard. It's not just that he can figure it out. In the words of another theologian, it is as easy for God to create a world as to move a feather. That's what Jonathan's acknowledging here. This is the God that he believes in. It's the God that you and I believe in. Because if this isn't God, he's not worth believing in at all. So, faith comes built upon this premise that God is powerful to do what he promises. The Lord is powerful to do whatever promises. We ask of him, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. The the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. That's faith's confidence. But then notice, secondly, faith's humility. There's this premise, right? God can do all that he promises. God can do whatever we ask. There's that premise, but there's still no presumption in true faith. Because what does Jonathan say? He says to his armor bearer, it may be. That the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Are those two statements um, in in contradiction? If nothing can hinder God, why doesn't he say the Lord will work for us? Why does he say it may be? It's not that he doubts. It's not that he's hedging his bets. It's that he's not presuming on God to do whatever he asks of him. Real faith, true faith, keeps God as God. The moment we start telling God what to do, we've taken him from his place as God and we've made him our puppet. That is not faith. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. And some people think, well, if you pray, you know, you're asking God for something, and then you say, if it's your will, if you're, you know, if you're willing, that that sucks the life out of prayer. I want, you to, I want you to know that that kind of language, if it be your will, does not suck the life out of prayer. That actually keeps you praying and prevents you from demanding. That is the language of prayer. So uh, Jonathan is, is recognizing Jonathan is recognizing that, yes, God can do all things, but I don't know those things which God will do. It's humble. Life is, is blurry. There's, there's certain things that we don't need to pray about. We don't need to say, Lord, if it be your will, um, uh, you know, keep me from sin. That is God's will. Uh, th- this is the will of the Lord, your sanctification, First Thessalonians chapter 4. So we don't need to say, Lord, if that's what you want, do this. We, there are certain things we know, but a lot of life is more gray than that, is blurrier than that. We know God's ability, but we don't always know God's will, and we don't demand to know it either. But finally, see faith's action. We've seen the confidence of faith, the humility of faith, and the action of faith. Here's the beauty of this story and Jonathan's faith, that he acknowledges that God can save he also acknowledges that God might not save at this time or in this way and yet what does he do he still presses on is that how you would respond if you were in his situation what if you knew for sure God could do something he was able to do it but you did not know for sure if he would do it sometimes that second point will keep us paralyzed right it does the exact opposite in Jonathan. He, he, he's energized. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It's almost as though he's excited. He's saying to his armor bearer, who knows what God's going to do? Wouldn't it be amazing if God did this? Wouldn't that be great if we could have a front row seat to God working in this way? Who knows? And so he acts. And he acts out of faith. He knows that God on his side can do all things. Perhaps... God will not be pleased to grant victory in this particular way, but he might. And that doesn't paralyze him. It energizes him. Maybe you need that same push today. You might feel like you're on the precipice of a particular decision, an important decision, a terrifying one, one in which you think if you take the wrong step, if something doesn't work out the right way, you're going to plummet. And you want answers. You know God can work for you, but will he work for you in the way that you're hoping or planning for? We're not promised all of those answers. Jonathan didn't know, but he acted anyway. What did he know, though? What was his confidence? He knew that nothing was too great for God. Friends, since you know the same, then be fueled by faith and not crippled by fear. Be fueled to serve God, even in the most difficult of situations, and get ready to be exhilarated by the amazing ways that God will work for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your power. We thank you that you are all power. We thank you that nothing is impossible with God. We believe that, Lord, but help our unbelief. Help us to have faith and for that faith to show itself in a trust in you and that we would trust you even in our actions, that we would step out in faith to do the things that you call us to do.